Welcome to Closer Look. I'm Maria Morgan. Thanks to a coronavirus, millions of Americans, millions of humans worldwide, hunkered down to shelter in place with family at home. But healthcare providers answer a call to duty, risking infection to care for the sick. What's it been like for them? Caitlin is an ER nurse in Northern California. Emergency rooms are often the first point of contact for a person infected with COVID-19. Usually with anything that comes in the door of the emergency department, we know how to take care of it. We have some sort of plan. The diseases have been well studied. Um, We have practices in place on what to do. And we don't really know. We're learning as we go. That's the scary part of the healthcare professional is um, we want to be able to fix it. We want to be able to help people. And we're, we don't have all the answers. And so we are working as hard as we can to find the answers. So you've been a nurse for seven years and in the ER for three. Was that a, a choice that you made to work in the emergency room? Actually, I love the unexpected of it. I love that you never know it's going to come to the door. And it's just a diversity of people and um, diversity of problems to fix. And I really enjoyed the challenge and the constant change. Working in an ER is already a, a, a stressful place, I would assume, even if you do enjoy the unexpected. So how have things yeah. changed with the quarantine and the possibility of patients coming in with COVID-19? I always just assume that they're positive and I treat them like they're positive because I don't want to get sick and I don't want to get my other patients sick. I think nobody could have expected this. No one could have thought that they were going to live through a pandemic and work through a pandemic. No matter how much I enjoy the change of my job, there's just so much more anxiety. There's so many unknowns. So your frustration comes as much from this just being something new and unstudied and that no one's been trained for as it is any kind of fear for personal infection. Yeah, it's, it is frustrating because, you know, we we like to be prepared and we like to have a plan, you know, and we are making the plan as we go. <laughs> yeah. What kinds of special problems, protocols, things have you had and you and your colleagues had to innovate since this all began? Uh, We really had to change the way that we used our personal protective equipment. We have new practices to create less waste. We are reusing our masks and um, other equipment. Um, We also ran out of a cleaning wipe, so we don't have disposable cleaning wipes. We have to just use like clean rag and a solution. And, um, you know, like our, our workflows are very different. Requires like constant being constantly willing to change. Like every day when we come in, we have like a huddle and um, we talk about the things that have changed, what's different today, what's the plan today, and just doing the best that you can do in the moment. And that's different than it was before? We, well, we always knew that the supplies are going to be there. We were never concerned that supplies are going to run out. We were never concerned. Mm-hmm that we were going to get a whole rush of patients and not enough ventilators. That's never been a concern before. And so we're constantly trying to conserve and be um, good stewards of the resources that we do have. You know, it's not just me in my hospital that needs N95. It's 
all the other healthcare professionals in New York and Detroit and all over the nation that also need them. I'm also looking out for them too. Do you see any fellow nurses or doctors getting sick from COVID? Have you had that experience? So I've had a couple of confirmed exposures and uh, check my temperature twice a day. I also make sure I don't have any symptoms. One day I checked my temperature and I had a low-grade fever. So I had to call my manager and I said, listen, I have a fever. I don't want to come into work today. So I got tested that day. And then the next day I came back and it was negative. When it came back negative, I don't think I realized how, how much anxiety goes into like checking my temperature every day and knowing that I'm exposed every day. I think for me, I'm not so much concerned about me getting sick, but I always worry about my family and infecting other people. How does knowing that you were exposed at least twice, how has that changed what you do when you come home from work? When I come home from work, um, immediately when I step in the door, I take off all my clothes. It goes into a plastic bag. I have completely separated the things that go into my work and what doesn't. So I have like a um, cleaning supplies right at the door and I clean everything. I clean my shoes, my stethoscope, anything that went into the hospital, I clean right away. And when I go outside, I'm always wearing a mask um, just because I know that I've been exposed and I just don't want to spread it around. The um, exposures you had, what can you tell me about how that happened? If, it, if we suspect a person is positive and we put them on a certain set of precautions, um, so we call them uh, droplet and contact precautions. But also what we do is we put a sign-in sheet outside of the door. So anyone who walks in and out of that room signs the sheet saying that they've been in the room. And then if that person ends up coming positive later, then your someone will contact you and let you know. It can take some time to find out that the person has had some symptoms of COVID-19. When it's not something like quarantine and a global pandemic, but you work in an ER, do you feel the same need to protect yourself from incoming patients? I think it's like the unknown. So, you know, let's say like during flu season, um, we know when flu season is, we know when it's likely to happen. We know uh, how it's transmitted. We know how soon people start showing symptoms and how long they'll have symptoms for. And we know when they're most infectious. So based on all that knowledge, we can say, okay, you, you know, you may not have the flu, but you have these symptoms. I can wear a mask. I'm going to, you know, put you away from other people. I'm going to make sure that you don't get anyone else sick. Like we have a plan with the coronavirus. We don't know how many people are sick. We're still learning how it's transmitted we're still learning when people are most infectious. So every single person who comes in who we suspect may have it, 
we have to treat to the highest degree. We are trying to make the safest decisions possible, which requires a lot more effort because we have less knowledge. What are you hearing and seeing in the staff working alongside you? You've expressed some stress, your own personal stress. What are you when do you when you get a moment to stand for just a just a second to stand and look at each other? What are you saying? What's what glances are you exchanging? Uh, we we talk a lot about New York. We like talk about New York and just say how frightening that would be, um, how much stress that would be. We understand what they're going through because we are nurses and doctors too. We talk about studies that we've read about. Um, we talk about people like not nurses and doctors that we know in other places, things that they've tried. You know, we're constantly, honestly, like we're just talking about it all the time. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, but we're always like swapping stories, trying to figure out like, what if this would work? What if, you know, what about this study of this idea? Um, would that be the best plan? We've all really come together. Like no one is refusing to come to work. And no matter our difficulties, like our focus is on trying to find solutions. It's just really encouraging to to be in that sort of environment. I'm Maria Morgan talking with Caitlin. She's a nurse in the emergency room at a Northern California hospital. In that way, on the front lines of COVID-19, people come in, they may or may not be sick. You have to assume they are for the safety of the other people in the ER. Caitlin, would you call yourself burned out? Are you stressed out? Are you burned out? Where Where are you on that emotional spectrum? Uh, you know... I would say I am going to show up to work every day. Like this is what I'm called to do right now. And of course, like emotional turmoil is going to happen. Um, but I'm, I'm showing up and all healthcare workers are. And that's what we do. What do you personally do to cope with the stress of this unseen enemy in this uncharted territory? I really try to leave work at work. Um, it's hard, but I come home and I try to do the things that make me happy. <laughs> Just simple things like drinking a cup of tea and reading and being kind to myself. If I don't want to see people or if I don't want to talk to people on the phone, I don't. If I feel like laying around and not doing anything, then I don't do it. And I mean, mostly just spending time with my family and calling my family and um, hearing their encouragement is also very helpful. You um, mentioned you've been a nurse for seven years, which means it wasn't that long ago before you began your career, seven years. How has working in healthcare changed you? Uh, it's definitely made me more humble. <laughs> I think I, I went in to be a nurse because I wanted to save the world. <laughs> and these past seven years, it's been a lesson of learning to humble myself that I can't save the world, that I can only do what's in front of me and care for the person that's in front of me. And it's pretty ironic that I've spent, like the lesson has been for me to let go of my pride and I can't save the world. And then as soon as I start to learn that, the world is asking me to save them. 
it's pretty ironic. <laughs> that is ironic, I have to say. You love a good irony. Um, <laughs> when the pandemic has passed, what lessons do you hope hospitals have learned from this? And, and not just hospitals, what do you hope Americans have learned? I hope that we can learn to love and respect each other more. I hope that we can see people for who they are, that we don't see them through the lens of their class, their race, their job, but that we're all on this world together, that we're all in this together, and we all need to help each other because if we don't help each other, then no one's going to make it. I just really want people to care for each other and care for the stranger. What can people hearing your voice right now do to support you and your colleagues on the front lines? You know, a lot of people say that I'm a hero, but in my eyes, I feel like every single one of you is a hero because it's not anything that I'm doing that's stopping the spread. It's things that every individual is doing when you're staying at home, when you're social distancing, when you're washing your hands, when you're wearing a mask. All these things are making my life safer. What's your message to other healthcare workers, other nurses on the front lines, doctors on the front lines who are working daily with COVID-19 patients? They're risking exposure, particularly those ones in New York City. Um, I just want to say I'm with you. I think about you all the time and um, my heart goes out to you. You guys are the bravest people I know. And um, words cannot express your strength. Thank you, Caitlin. Robert Moore is in New York City. He's tending to the mental and spiritual health of those very nurses. Closer Looks Monica Kelly talked with him after he put in another long 12-hour workday. Give us an idea of what you're seeing. Our nurses and doctors, uh, the medical professionals, um, there's a couple of things they're facing. So physical exhaustion is the first. They are working 12-hour shifts, and they come and they work 21 days straight. So there's very little downtime. They are seeing the worst of this virus. You know, in New York City, they've described it as ground zero, and that's exactly what they're coming back and they're telling us. The first week we were here, it was not uncommon to have nurses coming back and reporting that they had had 10 of their own patients die in a shift. In addition, there's um, kind of this sense of futility um, as the patients reach a certain point. And after they hit that point, the survivability becomes really minimal. And so then they kind of feel like they are battling this, this disease that's almost undefeatable at that point. Certainly, it's, it's very unnatural. The two things we keep hearing is it is just surreal. Um, they can't believe they're seeing what they're seeing. And that they could have never, ever imagined anything like this anywhere in the world, let alone in America. I'm Monica Kelly with Closer Look. And my guest today is Robert Moore. He is with the 1033 Foundation. So you're in New York City with your wife. Tell me and your team, tell us about what you're doing. Well, we are providing acute debriefing, defusing of the nurses who are here on the front lines, physicians, assistants and nurse practitioners who have been brought from all over the country to assist with the treatment of patients here in New York City. We greet them on the way out in the morning. We start our day at 0400 
And we're here talking to the nurses on the way out, encouraging them, lifting them up, praying over them. We have, you know, prayer circles in the morning. We pray for them before they leave. We pray over their buses. And then when they come back at the end of the day, we're here to greet them. We're looking for those that are hanging their head, tears in their eyes. They've just had a a day um, that, that just can't be understood by anybody that's not here. And um, we pray with them, um, you know, those that just need to talk, we listen. The goal is to take some of their emotional burden from them, to take that stress that they have bottled up and to take that from them so that they can go and get the sleep they need in the hours in between their shifts. We do that, you know, different ways. Um, some of them, uh, you know, some joking, some laughing, talking about their home and their kids. For others, it's a very deep, very detailed conversation. Um, about the things they've seen. They just have to talk it out so that it's not their sole burden to carry uh, so that they can stay in the fight and not be overcome with grief or overcome with anxiety or fear and become unable to provide treatment to those in the hospital. Now, these are medical professionals who volunteered to come to New York City, correct? Yes, they've come from all over the country. We've had nurses from... Of course, we're in New York. We've had nurses from California and Alaska, Texas, Arkansas, you name it. We've had nurses from there. You know, many of them have left at home their spouse and kids to come and sort of join in this because they feel it's so important to be here providing health care to these, these patients. Have you noticed any sort of unifying theme as far as what has motivated people to come out? Uh, just sort of the sense of desperation. There's almost 5,000 of these medical people here, and it's not enough. So there was sort of an overwhelming sense of need that they answered this call to come. I mean, I, I know people keep likening this to war. I would say that they're volunteering, not much unlike the men who volunteered in World War II. It was sort of a, a sense of duty, and you know, many answered the call, and all of them are here knowing that every day they deal with these patients, they are at risk, but they came anyway. If you've just joined us, I'm Monica Kelly with Closer Look, and my guest today is Robert Moore. He is with the 1033 Foundation, and he and his team are in New York City, and they are just blessing people with mental health help and direction and support and ministering to people. How are you doing that? How does that look? One of the things we do is we try to meet their needs physically, making sure they're eating right, getting enough hydration, um, taking care of themselves, getting as much sleep as possible. Emotionally, this is you know how we sit down and we, we spend time talking with them, working through the things that they're seeing that are very difficult to process. We've also um, treated them in, in a sense spiritually. Um, so many of these nurses are away from home and dealing with some very hard things. So we found a local church nearby to donate some single serving communion cups. And we put these cups out. We invited them to come and join us for communion. And we thought we might get 30 or 40 of these nurses as they were either on their way out to work or coming back. We ended up serving communion to a little over 300 um, medical staff that day. They asked us to pray with them. And then they asked us to preach to them. We set up chairs six feet apart, just kind of a, a little bit of a a small church service where we are all separated. Uh, we just played some music off the cell phone and sang together and then gave a, 
maybe a 15 minute message of, of hope. And, uh, so we're kind of trying to meet them in the different ways. We had a, uh, a kind of a neat story. One of the ladies is here taking care of a patient who was an older woman, but she described her as very, very put together. And she was upset that she didn't look good. And so this nurse got in the bed and, and braided her hair for her. And she said she wished she had some fingernail polish to paint this patient's nails. So we went to the store and bought that for her and gave it to her the next night before she went to work. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the face of a child on Christmas morning when you gave them a big present, that was, that was what this nurse looked like. And so it was just neat to be able to help her uh, meet the needs of her patient. You know, so many of them are dying. The only thing these people can do is, is show them the love of Jesus and to uh, just hold their hand and talk to them and give them love. Again, another part of this that, you know, people don't understand is family can't be with these patients. There is nobody in the hospital other than medical staff and the patients. And so if they end up dying, the only people with them are these nurses. And so that's very hard on top of everything else that they're seeing. How can we be praying as listeners? First and foremost, we want to pray for healing um, here in New York City. Um, we want to pray that to drive this virus away. We know that God has the power to push this back. And we want to lift up our voices as a nation to collectively pray against it. And uh, so we're just praying that these nurses stay strong. We're praying that they stay mentally safe. And we're praying that they talk to people when they feel that they need it. We are helping these nurses who have come here from all over the nation, but there really isn't anything in place to help the nurses who are native to New York, those who've been on the ground before us, and they'll be on the ground after us. And we have to pray for them because they have seen things that no nurse has ever witnessed before. And I, I say not even in battle, the death tolls they've seen, what has been happening around them, it's never been seen before. And they don't have a way to process that. And they're going to need a lot of help in the months and years to follow this. Lots and lots of post-traumatic stress and can imagine just pushing forward and just getting through. And then later is when it's going to kind of hit you. Yes. You know, much like that marathon runner. They hit that 10 mile mark and they're in pain and they're tired and they're fatigued, but they push and they push because their goal is to finish that race. And these nurses that are here, their goal is to finish this race. And that means taking care of these patients and these New Yorkers for as long as they can. And for most of them, there's the option of quitting is not in their vernacular. I mean, this is their city. This is their relatives, their neighbors, their their friends and family, and if they stop fighting, this thing spreads and takes more of them. So they're going to stay in the fight, but when it ends, when this thing dies down and they get to stop and begin to reflect on this, that's when we really fear for the mental health of so many of these. And we've seen statistics in similar situations before, but I don't think we've ever seen anything this dark or this long and, uh, you know, the next big thing that we fear is, you know, a spike in suicide among healthcare providers in this area. And so we need to be praying for their mental health, for their spiritual well-being, 
for help to arrive to take care of them long term and uh, to nurse them back to health after this is over. You've just joined us. I'm Monica Kelly with Closer Look. And my guest today is Robert Moore. And he is with me from the 1033 Foundation. He and his team are in New York City doing that acute debriefing and being just available for these nurses right there and then. That is so important. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Of course, of course. You know, one of the things that I really, I, I, I hope and I pray somebody conveys to the Surgeon General, to the President, to the Governor of New York, to the Mayor of New York City, they should be looking to put together some kind of task force to focus on the mental health of their nurses and medical care providers in this city before this is over so that they can begin, the second this thing ends, they can begin focusing on that, taking care of them. Robert Moore, how did you get your training to do what you're doing? Well, my friend is the CEO and founder of the 1033 Foundation, Jim Wilson, and he's a retired corrections officer. And he ended his career. They actually thought he had a type of an autoimmune disease. And uh, a young doctor uh, actually diagnosed him as having basically a, a reaction to the stress in his life. So when after he retired, he started the 1033 Foundation with the goal of reaching out to all of these people that work in these jobs and helping them to live a healthier life. Uh, we began taking courses that were offered by Caleb through crisisresponse.org, classes at the overarching umbrella of this is called Critical Incident Stress Management. And the goal of that is to take care of the mental health of these first providers along through their career instead of waiting until the end of the career or till they get to the point where they can't go on anymore. And the research shows that the number of suicide among police officers and firefighters and EMS workers is much, much higher than anybody would have ever thought. More police officers die by suicide in a year than by being shot or killed in car accidents combined. And so when we see numbers like that, we, we know we have to do something. So we began training through crisisresponse.org. Courses are taught by people who have gone before us, who have that experience, who spent time on these critical incident stress management teams, and now they're training sort of that next generation. And so what has it been like for you personally? How has this been being in New York City? The only word that even comes close is surreal. If you walk out of our hotel and walk a few blocks, you're in Times Square. No cars on the street. There are no people on the street. It feels post-apocalyptic. The only difference is between day and night. At night, all of the lights are going, which kind of kind of gives you a sense that the city's still alive. There's still stuff going on. But in the daytime, it's been very hard to tell. Um, so it's been surreal meeting with these nurses. You know, at times, it's really, really hard because when they begin to tell you what it is that they've faced during their day and you see them begin to tear up and they shudder as they're trying to keep those tears back and then they finally just give way and begin to sob. You can see how broken they are in that moment. But as we lift them up and we talk and with so many of them, we have been able to pray because the number of them asking for prayer has just been huge. And we don't always get that because we do operate in that secular world a lot of the time. But here, we found very few who don't want to be prayed over. It helps them in their resilience. 
And that's what we're looking for is to build up their resilience. And so if they come back after a long, hard day, or maybe they come to see us after it's been a long, hard week, and we can take away some of that difficulty that they're carrying, then they're ready to go back. And we've had nurses come to us or physician's assistants and nurse practitioners, and they've come to us and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't feel like I'm helping. And as we walk them through this, we get them to realize that none of the outcome is in their hands, that they do the best they can, but the outcome is never in the hand of that medical care person. We know God's in control. And when we can help them see that, they can begin to release the guilt or the worthlessness they feel at times or the frustration. And it's just amazing to watch that transformation. And then they've come back, you know, two weeks later saying, hey, not only did I make it through, but I'm signing up to stay longer. If somebody is interested in your foundation, what is your website? 1033foundation.org. So the number is 1033foundation.org. And the 1033 in that is uh, from the, the book of Luke, Luke 1033, which is a story of the Good Samaritan. Thank you, Robert Moore with the 1033 Foundation. Well, thank you very much for having me on. For Closer Look, I'm Monica Kelly. And that's our show. Big thanks to our guests and big thanks to our producer, Brad England. I'm executive producer and Closer Look host, Maria Morgan. Join us next time for another Closer Look. Closer Look.